Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. This podcast provides analysis of the DC films produced by Warner Brothers. This episode was written by myself with Alessandro Maniscalco, Rebecca Johnson, and Sydney. You can find us on Twitter at Otten Sam, at Raverin, at Derby Kid, and at Wonder Sid. You can also follow the show at JLU Podcast. In this episode, we are covering scene 17 of Wonder Woman, which is when General Ludendorff arrives to check on the progress of Dr. Maru. To this point, we've only seen Ludendorff and Maru once, during Steve's flashback, so this new scene will still be very much about establishing the personalities and motivations of these characters, who are the villains throughout most of the movie, actually. And Dr. Maru, aka Dr. Poison, got more attention back in scene 11 than Ludendorff, so here, the filmmakers start with more emphasis on General Ludendorff. He immediately has the stature of an important officer, being chauffeured around, and then he struts forward, framed in center screen, which is a powerful framing device, and it's where he is often placed by the filmmakers. And he's always walking with great conviction, like a man on a mission who knows what he wants. It actually reminds me of some social science research I read several years ago about how people who work with lots of coworkers around them are largely evaluated based on how they walk around. People who walk around briskly are perceived as hard workers and valuable team members, whereas people who stroll more leisurely are perceived as less valuable. So to just overgeneralize flagrantly from this study, the advice would be to walk quickly at work, regardless of where you're going, because it will make it seem like you're busy and doing something important and pulling more of your weight around the workplace. In other words, try to walk around like Ludendorff. But to be clear, this is the only way in which we recommend that you should be like Ludendorff. But visually, Jenkins frames Ludendorff in a position of power. This power is reinforced with his movements and body posture and then it's further reinforced through his overt actions. He asks his captain how long before they're operational, and then when the captain responds, Ludendorff just immediately imposes an even shorter deadline. He clearly has a lack of empathy, and his leadership style is based on fear and power, which contrasts sharply with Diana, who is naturally empathetic and caring, which inspires people to follow her. The captain gives a status update that confirms things are getting dire in the war, which will play into scenes later when they're talking about the need for the armistice, Ludendorff responds to the legitimate complaints from the men by saying that he hasn't had it easy either. And then he ends the interaction by shooting his underling right in the head to make his point that danger can arise at any time. The actual headshot is off screen, and it's not gory. Uh, When the guy falls back, there's not really any blood visible. But it's a brutal event nonetheless. Now, my personal reaction was that this was a bit too on the nose in terms of a bad guy move, and there is at least one other moment later in the movie that also seemed like kind of an over-the-top bad guy moment. But that's just my personal opinion. What I call too on the nose, others might praise for very clearly establishing the villains, as opposed to a much more complicated villain, such as, for example, Lex Luthor. But anyway, this is a shocking moment that further establishes Ludendorff as clearly a bad guy, and it shows his disregard for human life, which again contrasts with Diana, who mourned the death of the Amazons back on the beach. The idea that Ludendorff was trying to inspire readiness also connects with the Amazons, who had to remain vigilant for the return of Ares and for any threats to the island. In Justice League, we found out that the Amazons also had to be ready for Steppenwolf, and for the activation of the mother box that could happen at any moment. Yet the Amazons managed to maintain that readiness without the cruelty and loss of life that Ludendorff used to make his point. 
So what we are seeing here very early on in man's world is completely contrary to what Diana has experienced on Themyscira. And that will be a recurring motif, especially throughout Act 2 here. And initially, the contrast is between the Amazons and the Germans. More specifically, we might look at Ludendorff and Antiope and say that Ludendorff is a completely different kind of leader than Antiope, and a much worse leader who is more cruel and heartless. But as Act 2 continues, we see that Antiope doesn't just contrast with the Germans, she contrasts with the British generals too. This expansion of contrast to encompass all of mankind, not just the Germans, uh, it previews the realization that Diana will have in Act 3, namely that both sides are influenced by Ares, not just the Germans. As Ludendorff walks into the building, we get a glimpse of the inside of a warehouse which seems appropriated for engineering chemical weapons. This includes the long view of Dr. Maru's laboratory, brimming with various paraphernalia and concoctions. Maru's lab is pretty cool, even if it, too, is a bit on the nose. There are many beakers and different colored chemicals and Bunsen burners. It gives a very clear impression of being a lab. And even if it's not completely realistic, there's no arguing with the fact that it gives the impression of being a chemical lab. And it's nice that the set has some depth to it, which Patty Jenkins used well by having Ludendorff walk from back to front toward a stationary Maru, and then later he walks back up the other side, away from Maru. So he covers most of the space in the room, while Maru stays in her seat as a point of reference. Ludendorff asks Maru if there is progress, and she says not enough, suggesting there is some progress but not a complete breakthrough toward their goal. She says it is over, given the pending armistice. Ludendorff is not as harsh with Dr. Maru as he was with the captain he shot just outside. Instead, he tells her that he believes in her and encourages her. And she needs the encouragement because she's without her notebook. This absence of the notebook is visually emphasized by the scattered papers strewn across the table, and the way they blocked the scene, where she was crumpling up a piece of paper right when she appears on screen. The fact that Dr. Poison is a bit stymied having lost her notebook is a nice link back to scene 11, too, where we saw Steve steal it. Although Dr. Poison was featured briefly in scene 11, it is still good to see her clearly in this scene, as we are coming to terms with her skills and what sort of a villain she is going to be. In this scene, we will see some first-hand evidence of her ability to produce concoctions. And on the topic of Dr. Maru, since I have not read very much of the historical eras of Wonder Woman comics, basically just some samplings from the 75-year history or anniversary book, but we did want to share um, a quick note from our listener, Resident Grigo, from YouTube. He wrote, quote, Dr. Poison, undeniably a Jenkins character, always had a mask, but the original take was a Japanese princess who hid her identity under the fake face. It was World War II. The original design seemed to hide a nose or face-related scar under the black bandage on first glance. The film design has the 1940s colors and design, but is overall probably closest to the 1990s version of Dr. Poison, end quote. Now with the film, it's nice that they connected some color and some design features with the comic book version of Dr. Poison, but it's also cool that the filmmakers made it their own, and the faceplates work really well cinematically, plus they are fairly accurate historically. So again, in the first part of their conversation, Maru complains about not making enough progress, and they mention the plot point about a new weapon that they're developing that could change the course of the war. She then says that without her notebook, she won't be able to finish it, but Ludendorff cuts her off. He says... We will get your book. It is you I believe in, not it. This first part of that line foreshadows the events in London, 
with the German spies who will be trying to get the book back from Steve and Diana. And then the second part of the line connects with a broader theme in the movie, the idea of belief. It is you I believe in. Later on, Steve will talk about how it's not what you deserve, it's what you believe. And at the end of the movie, Diana triumphantly declares that she believes in love. Here, Ludendorff is saying that he believes in Maru as a person, more than any objects or actions that she has produced. Interestingly, this is an admirable stance coming from a man who was just very clearly established as a villain. But it actually is a good sentiment to put your faith in people over objects and to recognize that people are more than the sum of their past work. They also encompass their future potential. Even though Maru hasn't had the breakthrough yet, Ludendorff has faith that she will have that breakthrough, that she's capable of it. Ludendorff follows up this nice sentiment with a very gentle caress on the cheek. This interplays nicely with the mask and that character design of Maru, and it's a really surprising contrast to the way that Ludendorff started the scene. It also hints at a very interesting backstory between the two characters. What is the nature of their relationship? How long have they been together? But Ludendorff says that he knows she'll succeed. And then he says knowingly that it's what you were put on this earth to do. This is kind of a grandiose line. And there's a bit of a pause afterward, emphasizing the line for the audience. And it feeds into the idea that Ludendorff may actually be Ares because he's kind of talking like a god by claiming to know the purpose for which Maru was put on Earth. There's also a scene later with the dance uh, at the gala where Ludendorff also seems to talk like a god who seems to know these greater, like, grander things. But here, Maru responds by saying that something did come to her last night, a different type of gas that will restore Ludendorff's strength. She has made up several blue capsules of it, and that's a nice design feature to have those recognizable blue capsules so that we will always cue in on them later in, in future scenes. But it's also a clever little move here in the script, because right after we get a red herring that Ludendorff might be Ares, it is followed up by a quick little nod to the real Ares. Because as an audience, after finding out about the real Ares later in the movie, we can go back and rewatch this scene and we realize that it was not just by chance that Maru got the idea for this gas last night. It was Ares' subtle influence. This is how he operates in the world. He gives very slight little nudges, and then people take it from there and run with it. So the toying with the audience continues, because not only do we have Ludendorff talking like a god, and then Maru getting this subtle suggestion from the real Ares, but next up, Ludendorff inhales some of the gas, and then exhibits some superhuman strength also suggesting to us that he might be a god. And then, at the same time, a slight breeze pushes just the right piece of paper to Maru, and she uncrumples it. This is very likely the work of the real Ares, right while the misdirection is happening with Ludendorff crushing a pistol. So one of the things that scene 17 definitely does is, by showing this strength of Ludendorff, plus the skin effects and the camera jitters, it gives an impression to the audience that Ludendorff could be Ares undercover. We also saw his cruelty firsthand, and we know that he's trying to keep the war going. So you might be saying that this is almost too obvious that Ludendorff is Ares, and so therefore we can conclude that he's not Ares. But then you could keep in mind how relatively straightforward everything has been in the movie thus far. So maybe it's a straightforward movie where the straightforward reveal that Ludendorff is Ares is going to actually be what happens. But 
I guess the best thing to do is to actually judge this attempted misdirection by its actual effect on audience members. Just in terms of people I've talked to about this, um, personally and also online, I know of a couple people who thought Ludendorff was going to be Ares. And then most people I talked to knew it was not going to be him, mainly for the reason that it seemed like we were being set up to think it was him, so savvy moviegoers knew it had to be someone else. But in my conversations, very few people figured out who actually was Ares. So all in all, I think it was a pretty fun and decently effective misdirection. But we'll talk about that more when we get to some of the later misdirection scenes and then the big reveal later in the movie. But yeah, the real Ares is actually invisible here, and yet still present in the scene. With the conveniently blown piece of paper, Dr. Poison makes a breakthrough. She says, I've got it, and if it's what I think, it's going to be... terrible. I really like this pause before her final word because she does it at other points in the movie too, and so it's kind of like the character's trademark. We don't know if this comes from the comics, if there are these pauses in the comic books for Dr. Poison, uh, or maybe this was just an original idea by Patty Jenkins or the actor Elena Anaya, but it's a nice touch. And it's really emphasized by having her look right into the camera when she's saying it, and the music swells. So this ending to the scene, about the terrible breakthrough that she's had, together with the earlier remark about needing a deadly new weapon to extend the war, it sets us up to be very interested later in what they might be cooking up. It's a very good seed that they plant now, and it will sprout later, primarily with the gala and the gassing of Veld. Alright, that will do it for us on Scene 17. After giving us a fairly small but potent dose of the villains, the movie is then going to shift to some lighter scenes with our heroes. As for the podcast, we might touch on a bit of Justice League next, because it is now available digitally, but before long we will get into a big push on Wonder Woman content, going through the London scenes and meeting all the Oddfellows. Thank you so much for listening, and a special thanks go to at MattRushing02 for the episode artwork. And thanks as always to two DC podcasts that inspired this one, the Suicide Squadcast and Man of Steel Answers. I should also say that if you yearn for some good old Batman v Superman content, then you can hear me as the guest this week on DC Cinematic Minute with Mark and Nathan. And if you're interested in listening to a podcast that goes beyond DC to cover other franchises like Marvel, Star Wars, and Star Trek, then I recommend Fans Without Borders. And you should definitely check them out for their Black Panther coverage. Their motto is, it's okay to like them all. <laughs>